1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. This is Pamela Fuentes, your host for this episode. I am also the communications officer of the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology at the University of Toronto. Today, we'll be talking to Rhonda McEwen about her new book, The Sage Handbook of Human-Machine Communication. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr. Rhonda McEwen holds an MBA in information technology from City University in London, England, an MSc in telecommunications from the University of Colorado, and a PhD in information from the University of Toronto. In that university, she has developed an impressive career. She was first a special advisor on anti-racism and equity, and she's also the president and vice chancellor of Victoria University here in the University of Toronto. Her research focuses on mobile and tablet communication, virtual reality, communicating with robots and social networks. Rhonda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You edited this book along with Andrea L. Guzman and Steve Jones. What is the story behind it? How did the three of you decide to put this together? So this idea has been forming in my mind for some
0: time and work in emerging technologies, um, and and you know that includes VR, um, AR implementations, a lot of mobile tablet um, uh, devices, et cetera. But as we work in this space that is just all these technologies just coming on stream, we realize that there isn't really a one place that has a lot of the histories, how things got to where they got to, and also looking forward Talking about methods that we can use to study these these kinds of new technologies, so there are things here and there, but nothing comprehensive, nothing that focuses either on the interactions between humans and machines specifically. So not just generic, you know, media, but specifically that interaction between the human and machine. So I thought I was so original, right? I was like, oh yeah, this is something you should do. So I approached Sage, um, the publisher, at a conference. And I said, I want to do this. And, he, and the the person I approached, uh, Michael Ainsley, he said, oh, funny, there are two other people, two other faculty members thinking something very similar. <laughs> okay, but why don't you talk to um, Steve Jones and Andrea and Kusman and they will see if you guys want to do something together. And so they were all at the, sa- at the same conference. So we got together and just realized that we were thinking very similar thoughts. Um, and so we hit it off right away and we decided to work on this as a, as a edited collection with the three of us instead of
1: each of us individually. It's great because it's a huge effort with several authors, several topics from different parts of the world, which I can tell you, I really, really appreciated that. Like, you know, the really transnational perspective and the way you organize that. So let's talk about the first of the four sections of the book yes, called Histories and Trajectories, and it explores the historical foundations of human-machine communication. For the listeners, some of the topics authors cover in this section are the history of cybernetics from the early Cold War onwards, consciousness and cyborgs, social responses to machines, including emotional responses, and other fascinating topics. But Rhonda, how to put together the history of a field as new as this one? That has so much to do with ideas about the future. It is constantly thinking the future is here. The future already reached to us. So how did you put this section together? That's a good question. So one of the things we
0: challenged ourselves, what, like what, what in, in, in terms of the, the, our own research, where have been the influences? right? When you're kicking off on a way, this is a new field within disciplines or we're close to some other disciplines. So there's human-computer interaction (HCI), which is an established subfield. There's also um, human-robot interaction, also uh, establishing itself as a field. There's communication, there's media, there's computer science, um, but then there's the sociology of um, of uh, new technologies is also a field already. Some this last sociology. Philosophy was part of this as well, so we started to think. Okay, let's let's actually we we had this in-person meeting. Three of us got together with a big whiteboard, and we just started throwing up. What are the things that have been influential? Um, people who have come to human-machine communication from other fields. What what? How did they get there? What you things they brought with them? And so we really then started putting up. We put up on this board all these ideas and then we said who are the top people in the fields it you know that could talk to us about how these areas connect with human machine communication and so we started throwing up the names of the you know people that we knew we then really challenged ourselves to find people outside of north america you know not just always the us and canada what are people saying in um you know uh, people who are who are coming from south america people who are interested that from, from the Asian areas, from Australia and New Zealand, what's high. So we really try to find as diverse a group of people ideologically and disciplinary uh, wise as we could. And so this, this area is really important to us because, um, in a new field, you're trying to figure out how are you different? What is, what is unique about your take on this particular, um, these topics? Um, but understanding where you come from and where other people have come from. What we loved to is we didn't agree all the time on the relationship between those those fields and human machine communication. We had debates. We had debates with the authors, and we let the debate sit in the in the publication because we feel as a field coming through, you need to document how our thinking evolves over time. So we didn't try to resolve tensions or ignore conflicts and ideas we decided to to put them in the actual in the volume and so in there you will see people really grappling with it right um slightly taking different perspectives on it figuring out whether we can a machine has agency or no agency like a human does that was a big topic mm-hmm. how can you communicate with not just musing or or, or you know how do you communicate with the machine versus, uh, using the machine to communicate. Right. Mm -hmm. Really uh, battled in there and we love how it came together. Uh, we love the pushing the boundaries of their, all of the previous fields and the current fields with this new area, this new kid on the block. (laughs) Uh, how do you, uh, and we really think that we did. The authors did a superb job of offering so many different angles that we think it will last a long time and contribute to the development of the field.
1: And of course, I want to talk a little bit more about the other sections, but I cannot miss the opportunity that I have you here. And I want to talk a little bit about what you wrote for this book. I have a couple of questions just for everybody to get a taste of your research. So what is computer supported cooperative work? And can you tell us a little bit about its history? So.
0: Uh, Computer-supported cooperative work, which is known in the in our fields as CSTW, was one of those first um, fields that came together around the internet. So right in around sort of nineteen, I would say the middle of uh, nineteen ninety, um, we realized that the internet was offering um, an ability for people to work in a, co- a cooperative or collaborative way. Sometimes you'll see it described as computer supported collaborative work similarly. So it's not just one person with their computer producing something, but a network now of people working or sending emails to and from each other. Or, you know, back in that day, they were, you know, chat groups and other other really early, early stage things. So we realized that we the work itself was being transformed. How people executed their jobs were being transformed by the ability to network with other people in their work day. And so this field kind of came up during that part. But really it comes from a computer human working, you know, the, the human working on the computer to communicate via a network to another person working on their computer. What we are doing with in this chapter is saying, okay, here's the history of CSDW, here's where it came from. But where does it go in an area now where the machine may be part of the conversation? Mm. Right. And that's what human machine communication speaks to. And of course, when we were working on this book, Chat GPT had not yet come out, but many of us had been working with the GPTs, which are large language models um, in the back end. And that's what the Chat GPT that we see out now is based on these GPTs on the back end. So we knew we were already working with them. Um, uh, but to see it hit the, the, the public now where people really get it now where we say, oh, I see. So then when I'm writing a reference for someone, I can actually use, a a, a machine, a, a, a an algorithm to help write that first draft. Uh, and I could put in a few prompts, a few questions, and it will produce, um, a format that is looks like a resume and then I can then work on edit on that. That's a very different way of cooperation uh, than CSCW first understood. But some of the principles of CSCW remain. And so we try to see how can the original ideas of CSCW, the ideas of CSCW as it has evolved pre-AI, how is it now changing? Or what, how does it get interrogated by having these new technologies? that actually are cooperating with the humans in the production of work-based um, output.
1: And just expanding a little bit on this, in your in your chapter, you mentioned, if I understood correctly, that robots and other technology are collaborators or even co-workers in the workplace. And the fact that you use that word, it actually made some click in my mind and probably in some others, you know, when you think about co-workers. And you also wrote that machines, like humans, can adjust their responses to actions and situations. What are some other examples we can currently see in place about this? You already mentioned Ch- GPT, but is there other examples you could bring to the conversation?
0: Yes. So this is like situated awareness, which is an idea that comes out of CSCW, C- C- which, um, and it actually, it can work with... Um, photocopy machine. There was a lot of the early technologies around when CSCW first came out. And, you know, I, I know some of you are right now thinking about the last interaction you had with your photocopier, it might not have been pleasant. (laughs) But but if you think now about, um, even, uh, uh, your, let's say autocorrect, you know, this Mm -hmm. is just a, a small part of your word processor now that is there working with you to identify spelling errors grammarly these kinds of apps that are giving suggestions changing your grammar to fit certain rules. Um, these are tools that understand for example that when Rhonda McEwen is writing um, a paper for the, a British journal that it needs to adapt to the um, standards of that language that that form of English yeah. versus I'm writing in Canada or for a U.S audience you know we have different spelling and grammar rules that play. Um, when we are you know constructing language in those forms so so human beings when we're interacting with each other we do adjust to each other right you know you might be talking and then you tingle on a tangent and I follow you down that tangent or i bring you back to what I'm interested in and we adjust to each other these tools are also learning to adjust alongside the human um, in a way that really is to just be human to human and now because you know, in the old machines, the Xinrops machine isn't adjusting to you. <laughs> it <isn't laughs> just to what it's supposed to do. Yes. But now these these systems have machine learning, they can learn as they go. They can think about the context. They can offer you an advertisement because now you've moved, you've gone to Brazil for a vacation. It's not gonna offer you things in Canada. It's now changing based on your IP. That here are the things you might be more interested in. So it is all they're also able to adjust in a way that previously when we did CSEW, we didn't see that
1: level of a of accommodation and adjustment. So that's what we're seeing now. Thank you. This is fascinating. And well, let's go back to the sections of the book, which again I want to remind her, to remind the, the listeners that it's a, a book with 56 chapters, if I'm I correct. I really think in might be 16 three, but I'm going to,
0: yeah, I will correct myself if I get, oh, 65. <laughs>
1: 65. So I, I think I have the numbers inverted. That, yes. And all of them are very rich. They are short and they go to the point. Yes. And that's, that's very, something I'm thankful for. And one of the sections of the book is focused on methods and research approaches. In right. there, authors wrote about experiments, cognitive measures, visual and interview methods, Decolonial and Feminist Approaches, just to name a few. One of the chapters deals with ethics in particular, and it gives me the excuse to ask you, I think this is an overarching theme when talking about conducting research. Can you tell us more about the specificities of ethics when conducting research in human-machine communication? So
0: this was a beautiful chapter by Charles Essens. Mm-hmm. Sort of one of the foremost thinkers on on ethics uh, in research, and the chapter is a, a research ethics for human machine communication: a first look. And what um, what uh, Charles is doing in this chapter is, into you know, a lot of our ethics that we write, whether for research, research ethics, which is about human protection of the human in the, in the in the uh, research, we start thinking, what if machines are also the subject and the um, kind of co-workers uh, in, in, the, in the work that we're looking at. Are there any ethical considerations that we have to think about um, as well? And it's really complicated and it's becoming quite a legal situation. Um, but I'll give you an, an, an example that people might be able to follow. If a self-driving car, which is a machine that also is a learning kind of machine it uses a lot of AI and algorithms our interactions with our vehicle there's a lot of exchanges happening right you you uh, you can adjust the steering wheel you can send commands it could send requests back and so we have this back and forth with our our car but if a car can self-drive there are times where the human has less of a control some of the control has been passed to the machine and in that transaction the machine has understood it's it's going to park this car let's pretend but if the machine makes an error what happened who's who's responsible mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah. It, do we do we um do, do we are we clear that it's the user who passed you know passed it on to the machine or is it the design, the developer of the car ai right is it so is it a, a flaw in the manufacturing or is it a flaw of the driver who was in charge of that vehicle so ethically charles is really interrogating for us where where how do we consider um the, the ethics, I'll give you another example. If, um, if our language model, like GPT, if it makes an, if it creates its own source, like it's not a real source, right? And it, it ate up some data and it put it into the document and that is plagiarism, or it is seen as, you know, falsifying documents. Where does the blame lie ethically? Is it the machine? Is it us? Is it the algorithm? You know, we need to really figure out where we are on these these yeah. topics, because ethically, these are challenges that we have not faced before. Um, so these are where sometimes things that the technologies bring are kind of similar things we know already, that these are some new areas. Um, and so I think Charles did a marvelous job in that chapter of looking into those issues.
1: How much to think about, right? Like you keep talking and I'm like, oh, I, I read the book and now I'm thinking about extra things with this conversation, right? So, well, the final question of my interview, it's related to the final section of the book. Uh, that section is titled, Technologies and Applications. In the opening paragraphs, we read that scholars realized communication was radically changing when technology started talking back with human-like characteristics. There are 16 chapters in this section exploring fascinating topics, love and sex, virtual reality, education, and religion, just to name a few. how do these chapters explore the changes technology has brought on our social and even, sorry, and even emotional interactions with machines. And I don't know, with each other.
0: Yes, these, I love these chapters, right? You, you named some of my favorites. They really do push the boundaries um, quite a bit in these. This is like almost our futuristic section where we're thinking what's coming next and how do we keep driving this forward? Um social interaction, the idea of socially interacting with machines, I think is different than transactional use of machines. Like, you know, a plow is a machine that works in a farm environment. You work with the plow, but you're not really having a social interaction. So it, with that kind of machine, but if we think about Alexa or Siri or um, you know um, Google and some of these other uh, virtual assistants, we see now that and we learned especially during the pandemic when people were lo- you know excluded from social interaction in the lockdown that a lot of people were using these devices to to um, augment uh, or to support them when they felt lonely or they felt I you know further away from people. Um, there are many, many, many fun videos, I think, on any of your favorite streaming uh, video streamers of people you know, they're like arguing with the, these virtual assistants and, <laughs> oh, tell me a joke and, you know, so there's this this new idea that these are these are not these are not just objects for us to use like a machine in a traditional sense, but that they have this social component. What are the fascinating things that we see now is that the Turing test, which was this idea of Alan Turing, that we will have met the bar for creating uh, int- artificial intelligence if the mach- if somebody listening outside couldn't tell if it was a human or a machine speaking to, you know, and so the, we have these experiments where, you know, people are trialing this and I think now we see that we're getting so close Some people say we're already there. You know, Jeff Hinton recently has been talking about, he's known as the father of AI, say, yeah, I think we're there now. Um, In my lab here at Victoria um, University, I have a lab called Emerging Technology and the Arts. And one of my students last week in the lab meeting said, he created, he did a a hackathon. He won the hackathon. And what they did is create two machines speaking to each other. And listen to how fascinating this is. He said, you couldn't tell, listening outside, that there were two machines talking to each other. Wow, he said. And then when they put in certain prompts, like they, they called one of the um, one of the chatbots, they named um, Horatio. And because they did that, Horatio started speaking in a Shakespearean language <laughs> on its own. It started to think, "What might my personality be like, if my name is Horatio?" And then one of the chatbots said to the other, um, "You are very sarcastic," and the other one really started to be super sarcastic after that. It just picked up on it, and we were just in awe watching how these two machines be- became social with each other. You know, so that's a whole other thing. The book is mostly about how humans and machines are socially interacting, but we're at the point now where. The human is only one of the parties in the exchange, and it could be a conversation with machines that the human then has input
1: into. So, so fascinating. It is. And I think I've said the word fascinating three or four times in this conversation, but seriously, it's what it is. I don't want to end this interview without giving you the chance or, or the floor or the mic to add something, would you like to talk about something you are working on, your your work at Victoria, anything you would like uh, for us to know about this book or, or your work? Well, I, I think it's a great
0: segue into some of the work that I'm doing in the lab. Uh, many of the topics here make their way into my lab work in different ways. Students have different interests, obviously, but it, it does come in. Um, one of the, the work the things I'm working on right now is disabilities. And technologies and disabilities and how you know you think about the history of, of an object like a machine a machine but you know a hearing aid is a machine and a hearing aid has really been used uh, to to augment uh, people who have a problem with their hearing so in a way somebody with a disability and um, hard of hearing uses a hearing aid to amplify their human sensory system. In my work, I'm looking at cognitive systems. How might machines support Um, How might machines be in conversation with people who have certain cognitive deficits? Um, Like people on the autism spectrum is a particular group that I work with. So this is one thing I'm working on in the lab right now. And there is a chapter in the book on disabilities on human machine communication. So kind of lifting from there, and I'm taking it into the cognitive world a bit more extensively. Um, I'm also working on virtual reality and learning. So And there is a chapter on education and HMC here, which is, again... How do human machine communication and education come together? I do a lot of work on how might machines help us understand hard, complex ideas, like, um, in a genome, can you go inside the genome, um, physically, you know, in a virtual way through virtual reality and have a better appreciation for things like how gel proteins are transcribed, something you can not do, you know, in your own hands-on experience without very powerful devices. So these are things I'm working on in the lab. Um, I look at robots as well, especially issues of trust. So I do it a lot of philosophy with some of my students on what what is trust when you're dealing with a machine that it, uh, and you have to trust that machine in a particular way as a as a coworker or somebody living in your house, a co a coexistent, a, a, one of your roommates, really. Yeah. Um. So these are things I'm working on now, but you can see how they launch beautifully from the the chapters in the book.
1: Yeah, exactly. I just want to close with that, how this book is an open door for a, somebody like, like me, that I'm not an, a specialist in communication, I'm a historian. That's why I found really interesting that a section about the history of human-machine communication, but also for professionals like you that are already working in these big projects, they can go and look at, at the book and find all of these dialogues and communications that all are having, and it might be a textbook. Anyway, I can see so many uses for this book. So, congratulations. And thank you for taking it's the time uh, for being on the show today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And I really am grateful for for the interview. So, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this conversation about the Sage Handbook of Human Machine Communication with Rhonda McEwen for New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Pamela Fuentes. Until next time.